touching hundreds of experiences, all touch points, it's just too much. And so I have to look at the weakest points in the chain and focus on those first. We're speaking about customer experience and fan experience with Jonathan Becker, president of Sharks Sports and Entertainment. Sharks Sports and Entertainment is the parent organization of uh, several things. First of all, as you mentioned, the National Hockey League San Jose Sharks, also the American Hockey League San Jose Barracuda, the SAP Center, which hosts between 160 and 180 events every year, a network of three public ice centers, and a nonprofit foundation. So all of that together is considered shark sports and entertainment. The focus of your business is putting on what? You kind of hinted at it in the beginning, which is we're most famous, of course, for ice hockey and for the professional hockey team, which is the Sharks. And so people think of us in the sports business. But in fact, the reason our name is sports and entertainment is we're actually in the entertainment business. For example, last night in our biggest of the four buildings, a Colombian superstar named Maluma, which is one of the biggest acts in the world, uh, played. Over the Labor Day weekend, we had four shows of Monster Truck. Uh, We have the Harlem Globetrotters here quite a lot. So we have plenty of hockey, both professional hockey and you can learn to skate ice dancing, other ice sports, but we are in the business of entertainment. That's the fundamental thing of which one of the entertainments is professional hockey. Why is this entertainment dimension so important? The formula for sports is very simple, and it mostly boils down to does the home team win or not? And maybe is the beer cold? Then the average sports fan is happy. But more and more, people don't come to venues just to see what happens. Does the home team win? They come to make memories. They bring their kids or they themselves want something. And so they're coming, if they want to come in person, to remember what their overall experience looks like and what that journey is. And and the barrier for the entertainment isn't whether they can last nine innings at a baseball game or three periods at a hockey game or four at a football game, but rather whether they want to get off their couch because the competition, frankly, is streaming. It shows like CX Talk and Netflix and other things as well. And so if if the whole industry doesn't recognize we're in the experience business, and much like retailers compete for share of wallets, we're competing for share of entertainment. That's the focus for this industry. So your focus then is the attention of people who will come to you rather than stay home, for example, and watch Netflix. Yes, with a big caveat, which is they can stay home and watch us as well, and that's good. Is it better if they come to our physical location? Yes. But as we all learned, if we didn't already know it over the last 17 months, we live very much in a hybrid world. And so while there are reasons for them to show up in our physical spaces, we're okay if they interact with us digitally as well. In fact, for me personally, my role and my focus beyond the overall strategy is I have emotional and practical leadership for two of our strategic objectives. One of those strategic objectives is non-traditional sources of revenue growth. We call it think beyond the rink, TBTR, think beyond the rink. And the other strategic objective that I'm emotionally responsible for is reimagining all our experiences from scratch 
so that they are digital and mobile first, as opposed to in arena first. You're talking about experience, fan experience, customer experience. Why don't you like that term customer experience? Because it seems kind of the essence of what you're focused on and working on. I worry about the phrase because it puts the focus on the word customer. And for most practitioners, when you put the focus on the word customer, they immediately think transactions and how to develop a transactional relationship. And therefore, the focus becomes, how do you make money? And there are many, many experiences, both in our industry and frankly, in every industry, including the tech industry, which do not have to be anchored around revenue, do not have to be anchored around the transaction. In my old life, when I was a tech company person, we used to often say, we want to turn customers into fans. In this industry, it's almost the reverse. You want them to be fans first, and some of them you'll convert into customers, meaning that you'll end up doing revenue. And I think the best analogy for people in the technology world is to think about freemium or try before you buy models. You need your product, your offering to be compelling, even when people are not paying for it. And then for the subset of people that make sense, then you convert them into a revenue relationship. So I'm not anti-customer experience. I'm anti-practitioners, which unfortunately is most of them, that immediately look for the transaction pivot points and think those are the most important things. Well, certainly for many practitioners, marketing for many marketers, the focus is on the revenue because that's what they're tasked to do by their CEO. And that leads to metrics that involve revenue. And that, and from that, radiating out, we have customer experience that is transactional or ultimately comes down to measurements that are about money and transactions. Right. So therefore, maybe the metrics are set up incorrectly and they shouldn't start with revenue, but they should start with propensity to buy or loyalty or willingness to consider your offering. Maybe we look at the traditional, even though everyone likes to say the phrase, the funnel is dead, it's no longer this linear model anymore. In the back of everyone's mind, that still drives their behavior. What's the issue then uh, fundamentally? Fundamentally, well, at least in our world, is we think about touch points in isolation, not just uniformly. So people talk about the end-to-end experience. Unfortunately, in many cases, the ends they talk about aren't big enough. So as an example, when people come to our physical building and we send them, which we do every night, a subset of them, did you enjoy yourself? What was the best? What was the worst part? Almost invariably, the single worst part of the experience was getting to the building was traffic on the freeways or difficulty parking. Now, for most businesses, you could say, well, that's not my responsibility. I don't control the real estate. I don't control the freeways. That's outside my end-to-end experience. But yet, my customers, my fans, my guests are telling me that's what they care about most. So that means I've got to expend, extend my aperture and think about other ways to get people physically to my building. Think about digital experiences in addition to in-person experience, because that's where the satisfaction is coming from. And yet I got to be careful, which is I have to recognize that touching hundreds of experiences, all touch points, is just too much. And so I have to look at the weakest points in the chain 
and focus on those first. So your metric, your ultimate metric then is that long-term relationship with the customer. Is that, would that be correct? That is right. In fact, one of the things we're most proud of is at our season ticket holder base, we have more than, a, our, our franchise is 30 years old. We have more than a thousand season ticket holders that are with us from the very beginning. That kind of longevity and relationship you don't have in many other organizations. In almost any business, if you were to take that broader lifetime value perspective, it would lead to a less transactional set of interactions. And in a way, it's kind of surprising that more organizations don't do that. So there must be reasons why. In my opinion, the two reasons are one is we live in an instant gratification culture. I think we all know that long form art is dead. There's unfortunately, Michael, there's not many CXO talks in the world where people listen for 45 minutes. We're used to the sound bites and transactions are instant gratifications. And many companies, particularly publicly held companies, have to report revenue quarterly and they watch the street watches them. And so long-term relationships don't become nearly as important as instant short-term gratification. Most, not all, professional sports and entertainment organizations are privately held. And we're in a situation where we have a single owner who allows us to think two, three, four, five years down the road, long-term, rather than have to worry about the tyranny of the urgent. We have a really interesting comment from Peter Coffey on Twitter. Peter Coffey has worked for Salesforce for many years, and he was a very prominent uh, technology journalist before that. I've, I've known Peter for a long time. And he says, in response, Jonathan, to your comment, he says, do not define the, the competition as those who do what you do. Your competition are those who satisfy the same need which may be something as general as entertainment experience rather than something like sports interest. Completely agree. As you heard me say, I don't think the other Bay Area sports teams, for those of you who don't know, we're in Northern California. So I think the Niners, the Warriors, the A's, the Giants, et cetera, I don't view them as our competition. As I said, it, share of experience, I worry more about streaming digital services and to, in the old world, maybe movie theaters and restaurants, because those are other ways of delivering experiences. So completely agree with this comment. So as you're thinking through this fan relationship, how does that anchor your decisions as the president of this very rich and complex organization? So the first thing is balancing what we call guests versus fans. Guests are those people that physically show up at our building, right? Fans are those that interact with us in one of the many touch points that we have, have. There's a limit to the number of guests that you can have. Our building capacity, hopefully the fire marshal's not listening to us, is about 17,500 people. Maybe there's a few more there for playoffs, et cetera, but that's it. There's a limit to that capacity, which is why I'm talking about Think Beyond the Ring. But of our roughly 1.5 million registered fans, the vast majority of them have never actually been to our building. Many of them don't even live in Northern California. And so most sports and entertainment franchises optimize for the 17,500 that are in your building. And I'm trying to flip that formula on its head and optimize for the 1.5 million that may or may not be able to get into our major building on every day. So for example, we've invested a lot of money in something called the 1991 Club. That was the year we were founded which is 
particularly experiences for out-of-market fans, including local meetups, but premium content that is designed for them, even though they'll never be in our building. And how does all of this ultimately translate into the revenue calculation? Because you are a business after all, and ultimately that's what you're thinking about. The good news here, Michael, is I actually don't measure that revenue right now. I measure the growth of the loyalty and the footprint, having in the strategy said that doesn't become a significant revenue component until fiscal year 23. So we're in the third year of a five-year strategy plan, of which we're actually, to be fair, slightly behind our growth rates, pandemic influence, like many other business models as well. But the minute I that somebody says, what percentage of revenue is it? And it's single digits, then a traditional business model will go, ah, single digits. It's clearly not working. Let's stop working on that. But it's the right long-term growth, even if it's not short-term impacting my revenue. You know, there's not too many people who come on CXO Talk and describe a five-year plan the way you just did. Five-year plans tend to be more abstract. But for you, this is something uh, very visceral and directly impacts your bottom line during the interim. And I'd like to say we had this all figured out in year one, and we're doing exactly in year three what we knew we were going to do in year one. That would, of course, be ridiculous. Like tech companies, we generate a whole series of experiments. And we can certainly talk about some of the experiments who have failed and not worked out. This is one that's been particularly successful. So each year, we pivot the plan a little bit pour a little more gasoline on that fire and grow with a what was a more loosely described objective when we started. And each year we sharpen and we know more about what that fifth year looks like as we get closer to it. We have a very interesting question from Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener, and he asks great questions. And thank you, Arsalan, both for listening and for your questions. And Arsalan on Twitter says this. He says, this you're you're describing a holistic customer experience from home to digital to stadium and back what are the budget constraints to do this and who thinks about this is it the ceo the cfo the cio how do you execute this strategy yeah budget constraints are of course for every business on the planet one of the things to do there i what we say is don't start with budget in mind. Too often in my career, uh, projects or initiatives that I thought would be transformational died early in their progress because they had too much money or too little money. So we start with what needs to be done and later on assign budget to it. And frankly, some things get scaled down and other things get scaled up. The question about who's responsible for it is, I think, the critical one for us. Uh, We don't have any C-level Things. We're not a very hierarchical organization. You notice I called myself the president, not the CEO. We don't have a CFO. We don't have a CIO. We have no C-level titles, no CMO. Uh, that's partly to flatten the organization and to recognize that we're all responsible for things like experience. We do have a woman who runs a team, uh, which is called the experience team. Uh, she's the X factor. I joke with her, et cetera. But uh, in the classic racy chart, She's accountable as for responsible. All of us on the leadership are responsible, but she's the ones that holds us accountable to deadlines, to objectives, et cetera. You're describing this very holistic view of the relationship that you have with your customers. How do you begin? Do you, do you 
look across all of the various interaction points or how do you how do you begin and how do you optimize it as you go? Well, the good news or, or the bad news, depending on what you are, is in our business, fans are very vocal about what they like and what they don't like. Um, all you have to do is follow me on Twitter for a few minutes and you'll see I get uh, hit up by fans all the time about suggestions for improvement on the business. That's good. You need to have a little bit of a thick skin, but it's, uh, it's a good way to get feedback. Uh, I'll give you a very simple but compelling story about when I first joined four years ago, because I was a tech guy before I got into the sports and entertainment business, which is our marketing mantra. Now, in fact, it's more than that. Our brand ethos was called Sharks for Life. And it was a fantastic uh, brand ethos. I used to say when I, in fact, I'm, Michael, I might've said this when I was on CXO Talk three years ago, I said, I've never been involved in a brand and I've been a chief marketer. I've been you know, steward of the brand where people willingly tattooed your logo on their skin. That's some brand loyalty. We don't really have that in the tech world normally. And so I really thought Sharks for Life was a powerful brand ethos and loved it. But we got feedback from more casual fans, newer fans, people that didn't grow up with a love of entertainment, that that for life sense, that tattoo the skin, which we used to show on social media all the time, that was off-putting. That, that seemed too high of a bar. And so while we're doing a great job of keeping the loyalty of our most loyal fans, we were turning away those that were intrigued by our offerings but weren't ready to commit by you know, burning their skin. And so we went away from that. We changed our brand ethos by listening to not just our most loyal customers, not those that have the biggest revenue, which I know most of us do in our previous life, but rather the fringe ones, if you will. And we changed our brand ethos to Teal Together, which is very much of a community-based brand. There's room for everybody in this. Regardless if you know how hockey works, you've never skated, you just moved to the Bay Area, you've been here since you were born, et cetera. And we created a series of micro-communities of how do we expand the brand dramatically? And as positive as I thought we were when we started Sharks for Life, I think we have, I don't think, I know we have numbers to show we have an even broader and stronger brand as well. So the answer is do it outside in, not inside out. Too often, we all sit in our offices, our cubes, on our Zoom meetings, discussing what we think we need. Let the customers and your non-customers, more importantly, tell you. So for you, inviting your customers in has been a core aspect of really understanding what they need and therefore guiding your decisions and your actions along the way. Yes, with a caveat, which is if you say customers, people think it's the transaction people. So inviting people in that would like a relationship with your brand, call them fans, guests, whatever word you want to use. Because if you just say invited your customers in, immediately you're going to subselect your largest brands that are associated with you, your largest customers. And you want those that don't normally get airtime, you want those in as well. And we have an interesting question from Paul Gratton, who says, what, is, what does the end goal look like for Shark Sports and Entertainment at the end of that five-year period? So where are you going with all of this? And he also wants to know what are the goals for this year where we still are facing the pandemic? And he also wants to know where do you see the, your use of Twitch and overall social media and doing behind the scenes videos? We run the company with a series of formal organizational objectives. 
this year there are six. Last year there were five. They're normally five or six every year, which have a series of KPIs or published on a scorecard, et cetera. I won't walk you through all six of the organizational objectives. I'll just give you a sense of two of them. One is uh, to reopen our four venues in a way that our guests believe are safe and healthy, because safe and healthy is clearly a top of mind for the vast majority of people, not just in the Bay Area, but around the world. And so as a result of that objective, we applied for and received something that's called GBAC accreditation, which is Global Biohazard Accreditation Council, something it just says the airflow inside of our buildings, the cleaning protocols, all those things are as high as standards they were. We are worked with the city and the county, so you can't come into our building unless you have proof of vaccination and you wear a mask. We've done things like you can order food in the app and then skip lines because we don't want people to line up or have them delivered to your seat. Um, we've done some great things like reverse ATMs, uh, which limits interactions. So one of the strategic objectives is to ensure that guests feel safe. Not that we think they're safe, but that they feel safe. And so there are a whole series of initiatives for that. And we have, we've opened up 10,000 people for Guns N' Roses, uh, 10,000 people for Maluma, the Colombian superstar. Uh, we had um, Monster Jam, which is a monster truck, 25,000 people over four days. These are the first and the largest events in Northern California, all vaxxed and masked. Another strategic objective because there's a bunch of built in there is to return to pre-pandemic levels on a run rate by the second half of the year. So we measure a bunch of things like the amount of people buying ice time, um, the number of events that are in the building, et cetera, to build back up. So those are two of the six objectives. Now I've forgotten the other questions, Michael, you'll have to chime back in. Yeah. He was also asking about social media and your plans for Twitch and I'm assuming live streaming. We were the very first professional sports and entertainment franchise to get a website way back in 1991, or maybe it was 1992. I think we were the second sports and entertainment franchise to get on Twitter, the third or fourth on LinkedIn. So we, we do a lot of stuff on social media. Uh, Twitch and Discord are relatively new platforms for us. I guess maybe another fun story there, when the pandemic hit uh, in March of last year and all events were canceled in our buildings for 17 months. Um, April of 2020 was the first time in the US that the four major sports teams had not played. And not a single game in April of 2020 was played for basketball, football, baseball, and hockey. To give you a sense, the last time that happened was 1883, which is interesting in itself because basketball wasn't even invented until 1891. So it's a long time since we've had a month without uh, all those sports happening. And so a lot of teams decided to simulate games and stream them on Twitch. We did that as well. But frankly, one computer simulating a game and playing against another computer gets really boring. It lacks the spontaneity that we all want in live sports. So we did, which is why I, I don't like the idea of games has been a way for us to not say esports versus live sports, but actually to meld the two together and create a new category entirely. Chris Peterson wants to know whether the ownership and the home venue dynamic affects your ability to shape customer and fan experiences. I think the answer is almost certainly yes. Uh, we have a single owner. Uh, many sports teams have multiple owners, and our owner is a technology executive. 
Uh, his name's Hasso Plotner. Some of you may know as one of the co-founders and chairman of the board of SAP. So he's a technology person. So he's much more willing to fund technology experiments maybe than other people that are less comfortable in the technology world. We are based here in the heart of Silicon Valley, which means uh, I don't really want to encourage this because I already get it. We get lots of outreach from early stage companies who have interesting new technology that they want us to try out. And we're able to try out lots of things before they go to market as well. So I, it would be too much of a stretch to say we are a technology-driven company. I think we're not there yet, but we are much more influenced by technology now than we ever have been before. So for you, technology innovation is really ingrained in what you're doing and you're using that, in, it's, it sounds in every way you can, to further that relationship with the customer. I want to be careful here because something I believe passionately is I don't like putting technology front and center, even though I'm a three-time startup CEO. And so I'm a technology guy myself because technology to really work, it should be invisible to our guests. It should be invisible to our fans. So let me give you an example. Um, for the safety reason I talked about, we want to limit the interaction between cashiers and guests. We want to drop that time, time down to as few seconds as possible. That's one of the reasons you can order in the app and skip the lines. Cash is a difficult mechanism because if you allow cash in a venue, you elongate the time that people are in line. It takes long interactions, et cetera. And we want to reduce that interaction time. So we'd want to go cashless. But if you go cashless, you create a barrier to a group of fans and guests who may not have access to debit and credit cards. So you can use technology to solve that problem. We created something with a, with a company called a reverse ATM, where you put, it's just exactly what it sounds like. In an ATM, you normally put a debit card in, you get cash back. Reverse ATM is you put cash in and you get a Sharks branded debit card back. We eat the fees. No fees are to the guest as well. And now that fan can use that debit card, not just in our building, but anywhere a debit card is accepted. So from a technology point of view, we've used technology to solve a problem, but now I'm actually in fans' pockets as well. So I have an idea about share of entertainment. And so you can see a step along the way of how I become an entertainment franchise based on data, not just solving the technology problem of what do I do about cash in my building? It sounds like there's a heavy emphasis on thinking about that relationship and all of the various points that you intersect with your fans, your guests customers and so on. I'm a little bit obsessed with words. Uh, my personal mantra is words matter. So I 100% agree with your sentence, but I would say it backwards. It's not how we interact with them. It's how they interact with us. Um, because if we don't do a good job, which we don't always, but we have to be obsessed about it, of starting about what their needs are, what they see, what they're bearing. If we do it from our point of view, which too often we do, then we're optimizing what we need as opposed to optimizing what they need. And I've got to flip it on its head. Occasionally, we got it right. On that note, we have another interesting question from Twitter, again from Arsalan Khan, who wants to know, what strategic ex objectives did you not get right that you thought would be really useful, but didn't turn out to be what you expected for whatever reason? Yeah, I love stories of failures or the word failure is so harsh. I don't actually embrace the Silicon Valley mantra of fail off and fail fast because I think that barrier of the word failure scales people. So I like to talk about experiments 
and the experiment and the experimental method and experiments that where the result wasn't at all what we thought it would be. So for example, one strategic objective we had a couple of years ago is how to resolve, and I'll, I'll do this in the short version rather than the last version is, we have what's called the late arriving fan problem. Because of traffic in Silicon Valley, between 30 and 40% of fans can arrive within five minutes of puck drop or between five minutes before and 15 minutes after puck drop. On, it's not LA where I hear they come by first intermission, but, but it's still late. And that causes lines at the door, difficulty people getting beer, to seats, because in hockey, you can't go down to your seats until the breaks in the action as well. So we talked about how do we reduce the number of late arriving fans by, I think it was 50% through a whole series of initiatives. And one initiative that we had, we theorized would work, is to create a happy hour where we open the building earlier we provided incentives for people to come, like significant discounts on beer and wine, assuming that one of the reasons that people arrived late is they went to neighborhood restaurants or they went to their favorite uh, watering hole after work, as opposed to coming to the building. And if we could shift that behavior so they did it in our building instead, not only would we get more revenue, even though it was discounted, we'd solve the line problem. Yeah, it didn't work at all. Uh, and it didn't work at all because the people that showed up were people that, oh, and once they were in the building, if you were in the building an hour or more earlier, we would actually, because we have beacons and stuff like that, we would send you offers to create even more loyalty to reinforce that you show early. So all we did is shift people that came a half an hour early to become 30 minutes or an hour early. Yes, people came earlier, but the same people that were used to coming earlier, we didn't really solve the problem of people coming late to come any earlier. Why? Well, as we dug deeper into this, most of the issues, not all of them, most of the issues were people like to go home and change between work and our and our building. And so what we really probably need to figure out is changing areas or alternate modes that don't require them to drive so they can change on the way here as well. We were solving the problem that we thought we saw, which was food and beverage, but rather than the problem of them. So by, again, taking an outside-in perspective, we now recognize we need a completely different approach and one that's not easily solved. Did you ever solve that problem? We have not. We still, well, <laughs> post-pandemic, I'm, I, I, I hesitate to use the phrase post-pandemic, but as we come back out of the pandemic phase, we'll see if we still have a late arriving fan problem. We did last night for a concert. Uh, we'll see hockey season doesn't start till the 16th of October. So too early to know how bad the problem is. It's obviously not a problem on weekends and a big problem on weekdays. So what's happening going forward, right? This, the world has changed so much. We have in the work environment, we have hybrid work, working from home, working remotely. How does all of this affect you and what are your plans? I'll start with a couple of sound bites and then you tell me which ones you want me to kind of push on. One is um, we are reopening as you've heard and we are creating a next normal of people being in the building, vaxxed and masked, for the subset of the audience that feels comfortable doing that. Some will feel comfortable October. Some may not feel comfortable until next year. That's fine, the timeline that you're on. But we're trying to take more of that experience and make it digitally available for people. And what I don't mean is just TV broadcast. Because people can watch our game streaming right now, and they have been since the dawn of television. But I mean the, the things that go beyond just the game, the behind the scenes on more stories about the players and who they are, more about warm-up rituals, more about what happens when the game's over, 
uh, more simulated events. I believe, I think I said this earlier, there's a false dichotomy between esports and sports. I think those two, very much in an innovator's dilemma, those two will merge more over time. I'll give you a, for instance, and uh, for all of you who may be involved in sports entertainment, I'm not suggesting this is available this year. So this is a dream to the future sequence we're about to do. If you're a hockey fan, sight lines are probably more important in hockey than in any sport, other sport. Uh, there are fans that are passionate about watching a game from right behind the goalie or watching a game at center ice. Some fans like this high-end view where you see the ice from above. Other fans like to be low. I I'm more of a 20 rows back kind of person. And yet when you watch on, which is why it's just a great live experience because you can choose your view. Uh, many people believe, I'm one of them, that hockey is the best in-person sport. It doesn't translate currently as well on TV. So what if we switched the polarity of the sport? What if we programmed it more for digital streaming and television and not just for in-person? Well, what that would mean is we probably need dozens of cameras all over the arena. And each individual fan could choose what camera they want to watch the game on rather than let the television stations and the digital streaming choose for you. And maybe you could switch back and forth on the fly. And maybe there are even cameras that follow the players behind them. And these micro views, not the same as the TV view, might give you that same experience of being in the building. Well, you can't really do that easily because too many cameras in the building block the in-person view. And so you've got to find ways to, as technology moves down and cameras become better quality, and really what you want is the aggregation of multiple views into one view. And so that's, that's one of the experiments that we're working on is, can you do that or not? And can you program hundreds of views rather than one or two views? And we have another comment from Peter Coffey on Twitter who says, if you can add communal, those fans will be there. I think the idea here is uh, furthering, bringing the fans together. You spoke about micro communities earlier and that outside-in perspective, but basically engagement, fan engagement with you together with fan engagement among themselves, with the teams and the behind-the-scenes, team members and behind-the-scenes and so forth. So we do a ton of that, although there's always we can do more. So the old model of watching any kind of game, not just hockey, any kind of sport, was very much of a solo model, maybe one or two people, right? Because seats are designed that you sit next shoulder to shoulder and it's hard to have a conversation. Many venues have been ripping up those seats and creating lounge-like environments. And I don't mean suites, I mean lounge-like environments where you can mill around, stand, sit, and talk to people. And we have tons of what we call affinity nights, where groups of people who shared passions get together pre-game, post-game, and during the game to share them. And we have affinity nights around cultural heritage. So, you know, there can be a Nordic heritage night, et cetera. We have uh, affinity nights around cultural and diversity and inclusion things like LGBTQ nights as well. We have affinity nights around tech companies. So we do, and again, I don't want to make up the number. I think it's 40-ish affinity nights a year. Um, both in person and increasingly digital. I think our largest uh, digital affinity night is actually something called Women of Teal. Um, and we do a very large one actually for the Hispan Hispanic Latinx movement. We actually um, stream in Spanish for many of the games. We have a nickname called Los Tiburones, specialty jersey as well. So 
those micro kind of groups is a big part of the future. In fact, we have somebody and an organization who's solely responsible for creating and putting on those kind of uh, affinity group nights. This notion of community is so interesting. Software companies, I talk to a lot of software companies, and oftentimes they say to me, you know, we want to create a community for CIOs, for example, or CMOs, but let's say CIOs. And my response always is, that's a great idea because if you have a community, you get people engaged, they interact. All of the the kind of loyalty benefits, Jonathan, that you were describing seem to bubble up. But the question is how to do it. That's the hard part, getting people to show up. But it sounds like in your case, you don't have that problem. You have people that want to show up and you need to create opportunities for them to get together. I worry about companies and brands that try to force communities onto a group of people. Because I'm going to, you know, just the phrase, I'm going to create a community. When we want to create one of these affinity groups, we start with the other way around. Is there a group leader that is interested in being accountable for that community, rallying it together, bringing it? So it's not our community, it's their community, and we're giving them chances to interact with us. And so to me, the key of starting and growing and maintaining a community is the community leaders themselves. And if the community leaders are part of your company and part of your brand, again, you're inside out as opposed to outside in. So start communities with your vocal people. If if, you, if a tech company wanted to start a CIO company, find a CIO that wants to start it, not you yourself. As we finish up, maybe you can share advice on how to build a community. That's the essence of, correct me if I'm wrong, community is the essence of fan experience and customer experience for you. So let me ask that. Is that a correct assertion? 100% correct. I mean, I just, I mentioned our large building, SAP Center here in downtown San Jose does 160 to 180 events per night. I'm going to say something that's going to shock people. We don't program it for the 160 to 180 events that are the most profitable. We program it for the 160 to 180 events that most fit the community needs. And because we live in such a culturally diverse place, we make sure that we have culturally diverse events. And by doing that and by choosing to satisfy those community needs, we think that the corollary is that each event itself will therefore become more popular, that will engender more loyalty, and therefore then will generate more revenue. But if we started with a mathematical equation of tell me which events will generate the most revenue, we would probably have, you know, 25 pop concerts a year. And Peter Coffey just came back with what he means by communal, getting back to what we were just discussing. And I think he just addresses also the points you were just making. And here's what he says on Twitter. He says, communal, enabling, fostering discovery of others with whom I share interests and join in celebrating successes and recovering from disappointments. The more communities, the greater the likelihood that others share at least one with us, perhaps a less polarized society results, looking even more broadly. All I can give them in the social media world, I give them a plus infinity. What advice do you have for uh, company executives who are not necessarily in the sports and entertainment business, who want to cultivate, create that kind of community? And it's, it's really hard for them to do it. It's hard, 
unless you're willing to be passionate about something. Uh, being, uh, turns out I like vanilla, so I, sh- I don't mean to be negative against the flavor of vanilla, but if you're, if you peanut butter spread, to use the old phrase, and don't stand for anything, you literally don't stand for something. People want passion and purpose out of business, stand for something, being known for something. Yes, it will probably turn off some collection of people by standing for something, but you'll have a much more passionate community about something else. And so make sure everyone knows what your organization stands for and be authentic about it. I think that's easier said than done. It is indeed. Finally, Jonathan, what else do you would you like to share that we should know about the sharks, about you, about life in general? What are your closing thoughts? We live in a very uh, polarizing world. Sports and entertainment can be the great unifier. Yes, we compete on ice, on grass, on surfaces as well. But the reason I love our brand of Teal Together is there room in this umbrella for everybody. We, we speak out on social issues and we're, we don't mind to do that whatsoever. Whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's Sikh heritage, it's Los Tiburones, it's anti-bullying, whatever, we are going to state our mind. We, we love everyone in Sharks territory and we want to be a unifier in this world as opposed to divider. So come join us. That doesn't mean you just need to spend any money. Uh, spread the message of we're all in this together. I call it the hashtag Teal Together. But I can't let you go without just asking a follow-up, which is you want to bring people together, but in today's environment, if you embrace everybody, that means you're embracing people that have different views and conflicting views. And if you exclude anybody, then it's the same thing. And so how do you how do you do that? We haven't been able to do it in society. I reach out to people that have different views than myself all the time. Otherwise, I'm stuck in my confirm, confirmation bias echo chamber. I follow people on Twitter that probably you, Michael, don't agree with in their viewpoints, uh, and I don't agree with them. But if we don't listen to people with different backgrounds and different environments, we're, we're never going to learn. We're never going to grow a society. Diversity of thought is just important as all the other diversity as well. And that's what we're trying to go for here as well. So it doesn't mean I have to agree with people, but I have to listen authentically, try to engage with them, et cetera, because there's always a chance I'm wrong too. I'm certainly not perfect. All right. A great unifying message as we finish up. We've been speaking with Jonathan Becker. He is the president of Shark Sports and Entertainment. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to be here. I really appreciate it. It really was my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such great questions. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. Go to cxotalk.com and be sure to tell a friend. Have a great day. We have great shows coming up and we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody.